Well, 1 Timothy chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, with all purity. Honor widows who are really widows. For us, this past Thursday was a family occasion. Thanksgiving is a day when my family, my brother's family, my mom and dad, a few good friends, we all get together just to be together and to give thanks to God for His mercies. We cook and we eat, we pray and we talk, we watch football, and this year we threw horseshoes. This year was the inaugural Adams Family Co-Ed Horseshoe Tournament. Boy, did we have a good time, especially since I won. My dad was so upset he didn't win because my dad's really a good horseshoe pitcher. He was so upset. He's 80 years old. He's running out of opportunities. He was really upset he didn't win. I suppose that Jesus and his earthly family also enjoyed these kinds of family get-togethers. I've never heard of an Israeli archaeologist discovering ancient Hebrew horseshoes, but I'm sure that first century Jews also had their favorite pastimes. After the virgin named Mary gave birth to her son, we know that she and Joseph consummated their marriage and had at least six other children after Jesus. Matthew 13 mentions Jesus' four half-brothers and two half-sisters. Even though his stepdad Joseph passed away sometime before he began his ministry, from all indications, Jesus had this warm, caring, idyllic family life. This is why his words to his family in Luke chapter 8 were such a shock. Let me read to you the story. Then his mother and brothers came to him and could not approach him because of the crowd. And it was told him by some who said, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Now Mary and the boys, they just wanted some one-on-one with Jesus. But he refused to see his own family. And I'm sure the cold shoulder ticked off his brothers. Probably broke his mother's heart. What happened to those wonderful Thanksgiving get-togethers? The analogy of a family will continue to be the model for Jesus' closest relationships. But who would constitute a member had radically changed. No doubt Jesus loved his mom and his siblings, but Jesus was no mama's boy. At this time, his brothers didn't even believe that he was the Messiah. No, Jesus and those who followed him had developed tighter bonds. Allegiance to God had proven stronger glue than even the same last name. Folks who joined Jesus had sacrificed their all. They'd heard him speak God's word. They dropped everything to obey him. A new family unit was forming around Jesus that would eventually sprout into what we call the church. Spiritual, heartfelt roots had become more significant than just sharing the same limb on a genealogical tree. Jesus was redefining true family. Recently, I spoke to a friend who felt 
that God had called him to focus more attention on his family. And, and I applauded his decision until I realized what it really meant. He had found a new church where he wouldn't have to serve. He and his family, they could come together and they could sit together and they could leave together and they could just do everything together. Why be bothered with other people? In his new paradigm, everything revolved around his family. His house had become a temple, and only within its walls were sacrifices made. Hey, you be careful that you don't become guilty of family idolatry. Jesus loves your family, and you should too. But God in church doesn't exist for the benefit of your family. Your family exists to serve the cause of Christ and function as members of his body. You see, Jesus started a new family, tied together by nature and by nurture. God's Spirit imparts to us God's nature. We're nurtured through God's Word. It's not the blood of our parents that makes us one. It's Jesus' blood that now cleanses us from all sin and turns us into a family of forgiveness. Every time the church gathers, it should be a Thanksgiving celebration. And yet, few people today really see the church through such spiritual eyes. Most people think of the church as just a building. Let's go to church. Hey, if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't go to church. You are the church. And yet, the wrong view gets so ingrained in some Christians that they even choose a church due to a building's architecture. Stained glass. A railing at the altar. A cross on the wall, regal robes, religious art. It all provides a sense of awe and majesty. You know, people have actually told me that they don't come to Calvary Chapel because the building looks like a bowling alley. Doesn't stop them from going bowling. A church isn't the style of the building. It's what happens inside the building. You see, lots of religious folks mistake feelings of nostalgia for the presence of God. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Jesus doesn't favor a particular architecture. He reveals himself not in earthly surroundings, but in faith-filled hearts. Other people view the church as an organization. They want to see a constitution and bylaws and financial reports and, and a leadership flowchart. They look for human credentials rather than for spiritual life. Shortly after our church got started, people began to get saved. And they wanted to be baptized. It's a good thing. Of course, we met in our home. Nowhere to baptize at home. So I went down to the Baptist church nearby to ask if we could borrow their baptismal pool. Well, instead of being excited about the souls that were being saved, the deacon board was fixated on whether I had been properly ordained. For them, the church wasn't about God's blessing as much as it was about man-made legalities and religious restrictions. In the minds of the church, of those church members, the church was an organization with protocols, not the living, growing body of Christ. You know, still other churchgoers, they view the church as a business. And of course, there are aspects of church life that deal with business. We have to deal with property and accounting and finance. But many people, they take it a step too far. They shop for a church like they would a place of business. They look for a church that best meets their needs and provides the services they desire. They're consumer-driven. 
they view church like a burger at five, guys. And I can't even think of one without my mouth watering. You can choose up to 15 different toppings at five, guys. From relish to A1 sauce. And if you don't have it, and if they don't have it at Five Guys, you can go to Burger King right across the street and you can have it your way there. That's what they say. But you see, the church isn't about having it your way, choosing your toppings, adding your specifics. The church is the place where you learn to live God's way. It's where you submit to the Word of God and learn to live in the family of God. It's about doing the Father's business. Church is about one guy, and his name is Jesus. You know, some people, they, they even see the church as a theater. It's a place where you go to watch other people perform. You find a teacher who holds your interest or music you enjoy. You come regularly. You sit in your seats. You even give a token donation. You sort of look at it as a cover charge. But as soon as you hear that final amen, man, Bam, you're out of here, man. You split. You know, I'll never forget when Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain first got started. We had a history already. We'd, I had been leading this home Bible study that had attracted, oh, 40, maybe 50 or so single adults. Even though a few months had elapsed between the end of the study and the start of the church, I just figured that this group would be the foundation on what the Lord would use to build Calvary Chapel. I was wrong. The first Sunday, out of those 50 people, only five showed up. And here's what I learned by that. Just because there are 40 people who might enjoy a Bible study, that doesn't mean that they want the commitment of a church. A church is family. And that means accountability and authority and sacrifice and perseverance. Hey, a family means doing your chores and helping to pay the bills. It means giving to others as well as folks giving to you. It doesn't just mean having friends. It means that you become a friend to someone else. You know, some people want tickets to the theater, not genuine community. We all like to hear about unity and harmony. Loving others sounds so spiritual, but living it out is a different matter. Family life can get messy. Understand, Sunday morning, this is Bible class, but there's also a lab. Did you know that? Remember college? You don't get credit for the class if you skip the lab. Both are required. And for most of us, it's the lab that we need, that we need most. You know, I appreciate you coming on Sunday mornings to hear me teach God's Word. But there's a problem if you've been attending Calvary Chapel for years and still haven't cultivated any meaningful relationships. I hate to say it, but what you're doing really isn't church. You've been fooling yourself. You see, it's not church until it includes fellowship. God calls us to be more than a lecture hall. He wants us to be and act like family. And I urge you to step out. Roll up your shirt sleeves. Find some fellowship. Hey, you could get involved in one of the Through the Bible groups. Our TBG groups are designed to combine the teaching you enjoy with the dynamic of fellowship. You know, ironically, for some of you, the TBG groups that we've started have made church harder for you and less convenient. You were accustomed to coming on Sunday nights. You had your normal seat. 
Your routine was all in place. You enjoyed the hour and a half. For you, that was church, Sunday night theater. But now it takes more effort. You have to connect with other people. You sit in a circle, eyeball to eyeball, not glance at the bald spot on the back of somebody's head. And after the Bible study, you have to discuss what you've taught and give voice to your faith and decide how it applies and leave challenge to obey. You don't get to just run right out. Church doesn't happen until we rub shoulders. It doesn't. The other day I did some research. I looked up how many times the word membership occurs in the Bible. Would you believe zero times? Whereas the term fellowship appears 15 times in the New Testament. You see, this is the problem in today's church. We think of the church as a large, wealthy, resourceful organization that will somehow benefit me if I become a member. As the Amex slogan puts it, membership has its privileges. The idea is to join something greater than myself and then suck off its resources. But here's the problem. The church isn't something greater than me or greater than you. The church is you. And the church is me. The church is not something we join. We are the church. When we're born again by God's Spirit, we have fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. This is why we shouldn't think of church in terms of membership, but as fellowship. I heard a great definition for fellowship. You know what it is, don't you? Two fellas in the same ship. That's fellowship. You see, the Christian who only comes to observe is like the man who sits on the dock and just watches the ship sail in and out of the harbor. It makes for an enjoyable afternoon, but church doesn't start until you get in the boat. Church is not an entity I join. It's what I do. When God uses me to serve and to help and to heal and to encourage and to build up other Christians, I become the church. When the same stuff happens to me, I'm also being the church. Church is something that doesn't just happen in a building. It happens in our hearts. And, and for me, the best way to wrap my mind around this kind of a miracle is by picturing a family. This is how Paul refers to the church, Timothy pastors. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, he calls the church the house or the family of God. You know, ironically, people will hunt for a friendly church. Oh, we want to go to a friendly church. But you know, that's really not what you need. What you really need is a few friends at church. It doesn't matter how friendly the church might be if you don't have a few friends at church. And it doesn't take 40 or 50. Just a handful of close, honest friendships will provide you the real-life connection to God and to His people that you need. The Greek word translated church is ekklesia. It refers to a called-out group. Here's my definition for church. We're the group of people who have been called out of the world, called to Jesus. That's not all. We've been called to live for Him together. And that's the kicker. Together. And this is the life that Paul depicts here in our text. Chapter 5, verse 1. We're to act like a family. He writes, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. You know, sometimes 
younger men view older men as a hindrance. Older men are more deliberate. Younger men are more impulsive. Older men like to wait. Younger men, they want to launch right now. The younger man needs to respect the wisdom of the older men. This is not to say that an older man never needs to be corrected. Years and age don't guarantee obedience and faith toward God. Sometimes we need to exhort a person older than ourselves, but we always do it as if we would our father. We treat him with respect. At the very least, we salute the uniform. Young men respect older men. It won't be long before you are one. (laughs) So you need to respect the older men. And then you need to treat younger men as brothers. And this can be dangerous. For if word got out about how some of you treated your brother, you could be arrested. Treating younger men as brothers doesn't mean sneaking up behind them and giving them a wedgie. (laughs) Or holding their head in a toilet and flushing it. That's how some of you guys treated your younger brother. I used to sneak into my brother's room at night and scare him spitless. It was so much fun. Don't worry, he turned out all right. He's a pastor too. But in church, older brothers need to look out for the younger brothers. We need to teach each other the ropes. And we need to introduce our friends to him. And and we need to even recommend him for a job from time to time. And take him under our wing. All men need a brother with whom they can go to battle. We need to treat the younger men as brothers. Some of you older men in the church, you've been in the Lord a while. You've built up a wealth of wisdom. So who do you mentor? I hope you're not waiting for someone to be assigned. You need to be looking around. You need to find the younger brother who needs help with life and with wife and with strife. And he needs help putting it all together in a way that pleases God. You need to brother up to that guy and pass on faith to a faith that's being forged. You know, just as younger men owe the older believers respect, the older men also owe their younger brothers opportunities to grow and to serve, and to lead. Apparently, here in the church at Ephesus, some crusty old saints had had scoffed at Timothy because of his youth and his inexperience. He was too contemporary. In chapter 4, verse 12, Paul had to encourage Timothy, let no one despise your youth. We need to always recall that Christianity is not just a race. It's a relay race. Unless we're the generation that gets raptured, our goal is not the finish line. Our job is to pass the baton to the next generation who will carry it forward. We have to pass on our faith to our kids and our grandkids. And we don't do it by making them wait to take the reins until we die off. We've got to give the next generation some real responsibility and turn them loose. It's been said... You can hold on to your kids or your traditions, but not both. You'll lose one or the other. I don't know about you, but I'd rather lose my traditions. You know, here's what the future looks like at Calvary Chapel. And I don't, I don't know specifics right now, but, but generally speaking, this is what the future is going to look like for us. Louder music. Because if we get younger people involved, it's going to be louder. Weirder styles crazier hair that's our future for me maybe no hair I don't know it's going to come in small doses because that's about all I can stand 
But it's going to come. And I'm not asking all of you to like it. I might not like it either. But I expect you to appreciate it and support it. Why? Because we only have two alternatives. We can die off or we can get younger. I like getting the younger. I'd rather lose my traditions than my kids. I want to pass the baton. We also need to treat the older women as mothers, Paul says. You know, I'm 52 years old. And when I see my mom, I'm mailed. She gives me an order and I say, yes, ma'am. I grow vulnerable around my mom. After all, she's the woman who changed my diapers. We need to honor all the older women as mothers. You know, there are a few older women in our church I consider to be moms. They tell me to take care of myself. They're praying for me. And then they fatten me up with their good cooking. (laughs) On election night, Kathy and I, we, we went to Provino's for dinner. Apparently, everybody else in Snellville had the same idea. The place was packed. And there was a a very dignified, gray-haired woman who had walked in, and she stood right there in front of me. Well, I immediately got up and gave her my seat. At first, she was confused. She didn't know why I had given up my seat. She was sitting next to Kathy now, and so Kathy explained to her that I was just trying to be courteous to a lady. It took her a while to remember the custom. Men, if you see a lady in our church carrying a load or struggling with a door, I hope you jump at the chance to show her respect, to treat her like a mother. Hey, if your wife has been carrying a heavy load lately, either literally or figuratively, I hope you treat her like a mom, the mother of your own kids, as a matter of fact. Honor and respect your wife. Jesus loves his church, and he lays down his life to build up his bride. Chivalry isn't dead. It should be the trait of a manly Christian. And then we need to treat the younger women as sisters. And Paul says, with all purity. The young gals, the single women in the church, they are not girls to hit on. They are not women you can lead on. They are sisters to honor and to respect. Single sisters should be approached, Paul says, With all purity. You know, in the world in which we live in, the sexes, men and women, you know, they're either sexual or they're platonic. But Christians have another option. Relationships should be familial, like family. The young women in the church aren't foxes or babes or chicks. They're sisters. We need to treat them as such. My daughter was engaged to a man before she married the right man. We prayed the wrong guy out of the picture. (laughs) But before Natalie saw the light and split up with this guy, she had moved some of her belongings into his house. After the big breakup, she was reluctant to go over and get her stuff. Enter her two brothers. Well, Zach and, Nat, Zach and Nick, they drove down to Columbus one day, and they paid this guy an unannounced visit. They weren't too friendly, apparently, because he got scared. He ended up helping them load Natalie's stuff into their car. But you see, that's what brothers do. They protect their sisters. 
You know, we've had men in this church who've escorted an abused wife into her house to retrieve her belongings from a husband she was scared to confront. We believe in this. Christian men afford this kind of protection to their sisters. We're family. And the younger women in the church need to pay attention to what this means. If you're a younger woman here at Calvary Chapel, if you're a single woman, pay attention. Ladies, if you start dating a guy who doesn't go to this church, the worst thing you can do is to hide him, to not bring him around, to not integrate him into the fellowship here at the church. Don't do that. Bring him around the men of Calvary Chapel. Because if he doesn't want to hang with Christian men, his intentions towards you are probably not pure. Did you hear that? Insist that he get involved with your brothers. Let us check him out. If he passes inspection, you'll be blessed. If we can run him off, he was a jerk. And you're better off without him. We've even got a big trunk. And we know where we can hide the body. Ladies, you need to learn to lean on your Christian brothers. The church is God's family. It's the hothouse of Christian fellowship and multiple blessings accrue to a person who takes fellowship seriously. Safety and accountability and strength and stability follow fellowship. Throughout the history, the church has been seen as a mother. God is the father and the church is the mother. The church suckles the babies and nourishes the growing kids and then sends the grown men out to do battle. But the key to receiving her help is to stay close by her side. Again, here's our mistake. We think of church as membership. We sign a roll or card or we walk the aisle or we jump through whatever hoops the church requires. We make this decision that we're going to join the church. But then afterwards we think, well, that's done now. We can strike that off our list. And we just sort of sit back and wait for the church to help us. It might take a while until you're out of work or you get sick or your teenager gets locked up. But here's the thinking. Once you join, you've done it. You've assumed you've done your part. It's over now. Now it's a matter of the church waiting on me. That's the problem when you think membership instead of fellowship. The blessings you seek and the blessings God wants to give don't come to us through some kind of official membership. That's why Calvary Chapel doesn't have a formal membership. You know why? Because it's worthless. So what if your name's on a roll? You know, if you don't show up, you get forgotten anyway. You see, the blessings you need and are looking for from church flow to you through fellowship. When you're connected to others, when you have genuine relationships, if you treated the church like a family, you unlock the doors and the blessings flow into your life. First Timothy mentions a wide array of benefits to church life. Sound doctrine, discipline, belonging, inspiration, even benevolence or charity. This is Paul's focus here in our text, verse 3. He says, honor widows who are really widows. The church is going to care about each other. We're even going to care about people in need. In Bible times, 99.9% .9 of the workforce was male. 
That meant that a widow had very few opportunities at employment. Thus, when the family lost its breadwinner, the church had to step in. But here's the question Pastor Timothy faces. How far does a church go to supply financial help to needy families? You see, here are the two truths that all churches face. There exists unlimited needs, yet every church has limited resources. That means some discernment is required. And that's what these next 14 verses are about. Paul tells us how to hand out charity. Again, the overarching principle is in verse 3. Honor widows who are really widows. Notice, not all widows are what Paul would call real widows. I mean, you could also say it like this. Not all homeless people are really homeless. Not all poor people are really poor. Before you can determine their status, some investigation is required. See, a homeless man might be on the street because he gambled away his paycheck. A poor person may have spent his money on booze or drugs. We should never pass out God's funds to people who use it for evil. You've got to understand the need before you go to help the needy. Now, rather than read all 14 verses, I just want to quickly pull out seven principles from chapter 5 that I think Paul gives to us that should guide the church's benevolence. First, never contribute to another person's irresponsibility. Sometimes our help can do that. It can just make the person we're helping more irresponsible. Second, the church should first take care of its own. First take care of its own. This is what we're trying to do this Christmas with our Making a Difference campaign. You know, there's so many needs out there today. We just don't want to overlook one of our own families. We don't want some of our own kids here at this church to, to not have some things come Christmas morning. We want to take care of Calvary Chapel and our needs first. We want to, we want to reach out to others. But we want to make sure we take care of our own. Third, don't interfere with the character God is forging in someone else's life. Sometimes our help can sabotage the faith that God is forming in a friend. Fourth, before the church steps in, we should give God the opportunity to work in other ways. This will save the church resources for other priorities. Fifth, make sure your help doesn't become a further temptation to sin. Sometimes that can happen. Sixth, look for long-term rather than temporary solutions. You've heard the old saying, give a man a fish and you feed him for a day. Teach him to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. Buy your husband a new fishing rod and he won't bother you for weeks. You've heard the old saying. Finally, encourage Christians to take care of each other. These are good principles. And yet, this is what's going to come into play when the church acts like a fellowship. We're going to reach out. We're going to want to help each other. We need to know how. One Sunday night, a man with an urgent plea interrupted our worship service. He said he was a pastor from Tennessee, and he needed money to get his wife and small children home. He claimed to have car problems. He even had his hand all bandaged up, looked swollen and all. Well, immediately, we sort of cut him out of the crowd, and, and our elders interviewed him. And they, they decided on minimal help. They just weren't quite confident they were hearing the whole story. But boy, this man's tale, it, it was emotional, and it really tugged on the heartstrings. And some of our folks, they kind of went around the elders. They circumvented the elders, and they were giving this guy money out of their own wallet. 
The next day, I heard on Clark Howard about a con man who had been last seen in the Lilburn area, supposedly a pastor from Tennessee, scamming churches. I got so mad. We'd been snookered. But to their credit, our elders showed great discretion. God protected us through our elders. The rest of the church should have trusted their judgment. This is why Paul gives to Timothy these guidelines. This is why Paul sets up pastors and elders in the church. Good leadership provides protection and direction for the whole church. Health and safety flow when you're in a church, when you're connected to a fellowship of believers functioning as a church. People don't understand why the church is so important. It's crucial for you and for your family. And this is also what gives teeth to church discipline. When a person teaches false doctrine, or when they commit some blatant sin, he or she needs to be called out. If the person repents, they can remain under the church's protection. But if he or she refuses correction, then the connection needs to get pulled. The safety net gets removed, and they're allowed to take a hard fall. You know, in chapter 1, verse 20, Paul mentions these two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, that they were, as Paul put it, delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Boy, that sounds harsh. Here's the problem. They had denied the Lord. Thus, they needed to live for a while without his power and without his protection. That's what teaches them that it's a bad idea to deny the Lord. In short, they were cut off from the fellowship and the blessings it affords. And we'll do that too if need be. When a cancer appears, what do you do? You cut it out. You know, sometimes the only way for a person to appreciate what they've got is to live without it for a time. Paul said these two shipwrecked believers, they'll have a whole new appreciation for their salvation and its benefits once they've been roughed up by the enemy and the consequences of their sin. You know, often the cure for a hard heart is a bitter pill, and tough love will administer the medicine. He or she needs to taste the results of their sin. We've exercised church discipline on several occasions over our church's 30 years history. But when we did, it was needed, and God has used it to fulfill His purposes. You know, in a family, discipline becomes a reality. Parents love their kids enough by spanking them. And sometimes God loves us through the discipline of the church elders. You know, there are times when even leaders themselves need to be disciplined. No one is beyond accountability or above scrutiny. In chapter 5, verse 19 and 20, Paul tells Timothy how to handle a charge against a pastor or an elder. If more than one witness confirms the accusation, then a public rebuke needs to be issued. This, of course, is never easy, but it's necessary. Throughout Paul's letter, he lets us know that there's a place for church discipline. It's part of life in God's family. Well, I want to close this morning with a story. Some of you might remember Wayne. Wayne was a little red-headed kid who rode his beat-up bike all over Stone Mountain Village. We'd always see him in the afternoons after school, if he went to school. Most of the time he didn't. Wayne was the town pest. He was rough. He was street smart. He was always into stuff all over town. Wayne just needed love because he sure didn't get much at home. And so he started hanging out with us at the church. 
we'd welcome him every afternoon, sometimes get him, make sure he had a meal to eat. Over the years, everyone at Calvary Chapel embraced and befriended Wayne. I'll never forget the Sunday, though. Uh, it was actually one Saturday. Wayne was at the church. He was helping me clean up, getting ready for the next day. When a visitor walked in, wanted to check out our church. And you got to understand, at the time, a new visitor interested in our church, becoming a member of our church, that was a rarity. Man, I had one on the line. I was reeling him in. But in the middle of the conversation, this guy turns and he looks at Wayne and he says, Young man, how do you like the fellowship here? Oh, my. I said, oh, no. Don't ask Wayne. Don't get Wayne talking. Don't. I was scared to death at what would come out of his mouth. Wayne could say anything. Wayne was not known for his decorum. This puzzled look comes over Wayne's face. And I'll never forget his reply. He says to the man, fellowship? What's a fellowship? This is my family. Oh, great. Well, what a reminder. This is my family. You see, here's the twine that's going to hold us together. It's not roles or rules or laws or bylaws or programs or protocol. It's fellowship. That's the glue. A church grows strong when we see ourselves as family, and when we act like brothers and sisters, when we treat each other like brothers and sisters, when we respect the older men, when we love the older ladies as mothers, when we take the younger men under our wings, when we treat the young ladies as sisters with all purity, when we treat each other as family, the church grows strong stays together, becomes a bright and shining light to the world around us. Let's never, ever take for granted that we are the household of God. Father, we thank you for your word and for its truths. We pray this morning, Lord, that we could take this challenge to heart, that it really is all about fellowship, that until it involves fellowship, we're just playing it, church, it's just a pretend church. Lord, some of us, what we've been doing isn't really church. Not until we connect. Not until we start developing some meaningful relationships. Not until we drop the walls and the defenses and, and really allow ourselves to be known and really seek to know others. This is what we need. We need the lab, not just the class. And so, Lord, I pray for us today. Wherever we're at, whatever this next step means for for us and for the person sitting here today. And it may mean different things to different people. For some of us, it, it may mean uh, looking up the, in the announcement sheet and going to a, a through the Bible group tonight. That's what it might mean. For others, it just might mean turning to the person that they've been sitting next to for years and actually getting to know the guy. For others, it may be connecting in some other way. But Lord, we, we pray that we would be a real church, not a pretend church. Lord, that we would, we would have a real true fellowship one with another. And that we would really live out the love you've put in our hearts. That's our desire. That's our goal. We pray these things today, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.